Welcome to Made in Science, the official podcast of the University of Stuttgart. Today, our guest is Dr. Luis Chamon from Brazil, who came to the University of Stuttgart in 2022. He has his own research group at the Cluster of Excellence, SimTech and Alice. His research areas cover optimization, constraint learning, machine learning, signal processing, dynamical systems and control, and statistics. In our conversation, we will hear about different forms of learning, some of his international experiences, music in his life, and what it's like living next door to Alice. Hello, Dr. Shamon, and thank you for visiting us. Hello, thank you. Thank you very much for having me in this uh, snowy day, Stuttgart. Yeah. You described yourself not as a mathematician and also not as a physicist, but as an engineer. How do you draw the distinction? I would assume there is some overlapping happening uh, between these different disciplines, uh, but uh, perhaps you can elaborate that. A little more how you combine uh, the different influences, at least, in the work that you do, uh, in the theoretical orientation that you have in your research. Uh, what is what influences do you operate with? Yeah, that's a that's a very tough question because I don't want to step on any mathematicians or physicists' uh, uh, toes. So thank you for starting with the hard ones. Um, I completely, I, I have to resonate what you said. I think there is a lot of overlap between these areas. And nowadays, more and more, I think that um, the boundaries between fields have been blurred. And I think this is, to a large extent, very positive um, development that has been happening. I, I always joke that I'm more of an engineer than any other type of of. Um, let's say, of STEM, let's say that I am more in the E part of STEM because really this is where I grew up, right? So I am electro an electrical engineer by, by training. And that means I think that uh, to a certain extent, we see problems a little bit differently um, because of historically where engineer is. And I think that most importantly for engineers, the main thing that, that, let's say the, the part that comes out more strongly in engineering is really the idea of uh, working with requirements. So with the problems that the problems that we tackle in engineering are really based on, on these uh, setting requirements towards the solution that we are looking to, to for. And that I think is the main uh, differentiation between other fields where a lot is talked about, you know, what's the best solution, what is the best thing we can do. In engineering, we talk, you know, we have this saying that uh, the best is the enemy of the good. So good is enough to a certain extent. And that's what we seek. So we seek good enough solutions, which is not necessarily worse. It's just, um, but I think it's a different uh, paradigm, a different approach to the problem. You do this in an international group uh, these days as well at uh, SimTech, and uh, you work in a lab that is called Alice. Um, may I ask you to tell us also uh, more about that one? And actually, did the lab already exist prior to your uh, joining here at the university, or did, it, did you bring it with you? 
Yeah, there are, there are there are three things that I think are are important. Alice is one of them. So Alice is the European Laboratory for Learning and Intelligent Systems uh, that was created much before my my arrival to Stuttgart, and in particular the Alice Unit, which is a unit of this European lab, which is a uh, international um, entity, uh, was created before my arrival. I integrated, I was invited to integrate it uh, when I moved here because of, I think, in terms of um, methodological methodological alignment and topics, right? Um, so this is one thing. The other thing that you mentioned, which is important as well, is SimTech, which is the simulation uh, center here, of which I am also part. Um, and that, I think, is uh, for the things that I do very interesting because it, this is really a, a transdisciplinary uh, organization that involves a lot of scientists as well as people working in methods. And I think this is a very rich environment for, for doing work. And uh, more recently, uh, my group also joined the AI Institute, which is uh, very recently founded at the University of Stuttgart as well as an associated group. Uh, again, because a lot of the things that I do, I think, resonate with some of the ideas that are some of the topics that are there. So was Alice really a trigger point then for you to come to Stuttgart? Was it decisive in your, um, well, when you looked around for uh, for positions, you uh, have various experience at universities uh, abroad. Uh, what in particular uh, inspired you to come to Stuttgart? I think the combination of Alice and SimTech is a very fortuitous one. And it's very good for the specific work that I do, let's say, which is, like you mentioned earlier, a bit more theoretical. And that, I think, fits very well within ALICE, which is um, really a very broad uh, organization. But the way I see it, for me, it's my theoretical home. It's where the methods that I used come from or are at home at, let's say. And I think that the, the combination of ALICE with SimTech, which really is I perhaps a little bit more about a an actual problem, which is these simulations in, in, in modern times, and uh, how do we tackle these challenges that exist in, in simulation technologies, these provide very good applications for a lot of the methods that I develop. I think that that combination was very unique to the University of Stuttgart, and at least for me, this was an attractive uh, point to come to be able to exploit both the um, my theoretical colleagues, let's say, but as well as my reach out towards uh, application colleagues, let's say. Dr. Shaman, when I looked at your research descriptions, I saw that uh, what your focus is on very different or on different forms of learning. And uh, please help me to uh, overcome my confusion uh, in that. Uh, first, I saw that there is a term constraint learning. And second, there is semi-infinite constraint learning. And then third, non-convex functional optimization. Please, could you elaborate on these terms and also tell us what role these research topics play in your current work? For me to answer your question, I think it's interesting for us to take a step back and try to, uh, for me to explain what I mean by learning, which is a very specific uh, word that has a lot of perhaps um, Connotations attached to it—that is not necessarily what uh, what I want to what I work on. And specifically, what I mean by learning is really the solving of problems using data. So rather than building a model 
and obtaining a solution based on that, we will just obtain a solution by directly interacting with the environment or directly measure, from measurements directly. So to give you an example, based on something that is becoming very fancy nowadays, which are these large language models, right? So if we look at the first chatbot back in the 80s, which um, I think was actually called Elise, uh, which was uh, supposed to be an Adlerian psychotherapist. And that was coded by somebody, a person, that looked at how a conversation typically would go and created a series of rules that made it seem like the robot is actually chatting with you. So this is about, to a certain extent, understanding how language and conversations work, creating rules based on that, and then creating the program that that interacts with you. Now, if we look at how ChatGPT works, that is not at all how it is constructed. It is not something that a model that was created and then a solution based on rules. It actually looks at a vast amount of text and tries to, based on that text, which is data, come up with how a good conversation would look like or how answers should be. So this is sort of the things that I do, which is really, this is learning. Learning is just solving problems based on data. Now, um, as you can imagine, uh, going back to the engineering points that you, that you raised before, um, one of the issues with that is that data is... Even if we read a lot of texts, it's hard to interpret exactly what language is just by reading text, right? We go to school to do that before we start reading books. So we are imparted with a lot of prior knowledge before we start trying to understand these things. And the issue with just, let's say, throwing a lot of data at and trying to come up with a solution is that there are many solutions that might fit that data. And what is the correct one is very hard to, to guess. That means that, you know, perhaps ChatGPT understands that when you write 2 plus 2 equal, press enter, it should write a 4 afterwards. But it doesn't necessarily know what 2 plus 2 means. And this means that you don't know if tomorrow, perhaps, 2 plus 1 is equal 4 as well. And this is where this idea of constraints comes in. And the way to overcome these type of things, in again, as my training from engineer, is to put requirements. These requirements could be of all sorts of things. For example, requirement on understanding what 2 plus 2 means, so some sort of ontological requirement, not just coming up with words. But it could be also requirements such as robustness. When we um, try to identify whether the picture contains a bird or not, we want to be sure that a leaf that looks like a bird is not interpreted as a bird. And that's a sort of robustness of the problem. Or it might be fairness, which is something that has become increasingly important, especially as this type of learning or artificial intelligence solutions start to reach societal, um, or let's say start to reach problems with societal impact, then uh, it becomes increasingly important for things such as fairness or even legality in certain cases uh, to, be, to become a requirement. And what I study is how we could go about taking those requirements and embedding them in these data-driven systems. I got the constraint learning. Absolutely. Thank you. What about the semi-infinite constraint learning? Now, all the requirements we talked so far uh, have been one or two requirements. So we want robustness and safety and fairness. Those are three requirements. Um, semi-infinite optimization problems were problems before where 
rather than a finite number of, of, of requirements, we have an infinite number of them. And they are very important because, for example, in the case of robustness, we want not only a leaf that looks like a bird to not be recognized as a bird, but also a branch, but also all possible combinations of images that we could see. And that's an infinite number of images. And this, is, this type of problem is tackled in this topic of semi-infinite uh, programming, which is very technical, but it's just to say that there is a trick for us to essentially impose an infinite number of requirements that, rather than just a finite one. And the non-convex functional optimization, is that leading too far in our context here for the yeah, conversation? That's a <laughs> uh, how can I explain that? In a, I think that one, I, I'm going to chuck that one uh, as, as a theoretical endeavor. Uh, it's very important because a lot of the tools that allow the other two that we discussed to be used came out of, a, of that project. But really that is a uh, perhaps a little bit beyond the little bit of, uh, let's say, taste that I can give you there is that there are a lot of problems that we try to solve today that look finite or discrete. Pictures is a good example. Pictures are a combination of pixels. They look smooth to us, but they're just really pixels, right? But real images are not. Real images are continuous. And how do, could we possibly be able to, you know, process this continuous data is a little bit what the type of problem that we're trying to tackle there. Um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to say pass on that one because <laughs> I'm not really sure how to, that's my own limitation. I'm not really sure how to explain that. Well, okay, passed, absolutely. Uh, try to bring it back for, for my own understanding and I hope also for our listeners uh, as well. Uh, what, I, what you just described about your work uh, in network data analysis and signal processing really appears to have parallels to the research and teaching that I do in literary studies, where we also look at uh, texts and words and how they are constructed and how they go together uh, and, and what they mean uh, for that uh, fact as well. Um, I wonder, in your understanding, would you say that your field of work has also similarities to humanities and arts, uh, or at least some or more than one might think of? Certainly. I think that's a, that's a very good observation. And I myself, I find myself always seeing a lot of parallels between endeavors that are more in the humanities, um, from discussions with friends or my family, a lot of who's are more on the humanities, and my own research. And I think that Uh, particularly with art, I think technical uh, endeavors, especially in the field of engineering, um, have a, a big parallel. And I think there are essentially two things that I want to stress in that case. The first one, I think, is creativity. And uh, I think I don't need to argue that art is a creative endeavor. But I think that uh, ultimately... Technical problems also have a large amount of, 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 involve a large amount of creativity in solutions of problems. And to a certain extent, that's what attracted me to this area as well. Otherwise, it, it really, otherwise it's really like just going through the motions of doing things mechanically. And really, I think research is not at all that type of endeavor. The other thing that I think is um, perhaps less 
considered as a parallel is aesthetics. And I think that um, in, in art, clearly aesthetics, and when I say aesthetics, I don't mean beauty, right? I mean the visual, which could be a ugly thing that has an importance uh, to, to certain um, ugly within standards, right? Um, that has an importance for that uh, line of, of, let's say, of art. And I think in, 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 in science, something very similar happens. We, to many, for many reasons, either um, go towards uh, solutions that look aesthetically pleasing for us because these are problems that interest us in a certain way. Societally, they look more interesting than other problems. And also, I think there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of, to a certain extent, feel or, or like intuition that comes out of aesthetics. The, the parallelism in certain types of equations or inequalities that, you know, sort of seem to be right before we even prove them. Sort of. And I think this is uh, really, um, it's a re really interesting thing. And it gives also, I think, a little bit of a human side to science. Science has this um, perhaps um, fame of being really this technical, exact and objective thing when really it is, it cannot be, it is made by people. So it cannot be that objective or that uh, sure. And I think that, uh, you know, seeing this parallel with art and in terms of both creativity and aesthetics gives a little bit of a human side to science to also understand that, you know, ultimately scientists are people trying to do something just as artists are people trying to do something. In your career, you have focused on science and research, but also worked uh, in a company. Now, this comes together in a unique fashion at Alice and Simtech in Stuttgart. What would you say? Which lessons or outcomes of your experiences have you brought with you, say from that uh, stay or work at the company as well, um, that you actually very consciously try to implement in your current work? I, I really haven't worked uh, at a company. Perhaps I would say more with a company is, is, more, more, is more fair to my best. Uh, but I think it's a extremely important experience uh, to work with um, work at at industry at the industry side of science has very different incentives and goals than work in academia scientific work in academia and I think that is very rich um, combination to have even though I would never leave myself academia it's not something that I'm looking to do I think it's very important to have that experience and for me the most important thing that I took out of that, that I try to bring today to my job, is really the idea of how do we talk to other people. Um, people who have different backgrounds, different interests, and different goals than we do. And yet we need to sort of work together. So we need to develop, to work together to develop a solution for this specific problem. And I think in academic industry um, cooperations, there is always a language barrier that happens in between, because even though we might have studied the same electrical engineering and be working on the same problem, we clearly see the problem in a very different way. And this happens also within academia between different fields, going back to the idea when I talk to mathematicians or to physicists or physicists with mathematicians and even computer, my colleagues, computer scientists, we all have been trained differently. We all speak different languages, slightly different, perhaps dialects of the same language. And that means that communication can break down at any moment. And it's important 
to acquire, I think, the skill of first noticing that communication broke down, which is harder than it looks like. You, we always have this impression that we are communicating perfectly and yet perhaps not, but also how to navigate this communication breakdown. What are the questions that need to be asked to elucidate the correct answers that we need in order to solve the problem? And I think this is a, a, a important skill that I would say uh, is increasingly being lost, uh, unfortunately, but it's also a very hard skill and it's not one that I fully dominate, but definitely my uh, past work with the industry in, in different um, positions, I think have helped me understand a little bit better how to navigate these moments where we need to talk to somebody that perhaps doesn't have the exact same background as we do. And we need to somehow translate their vision into our language and our vision into theirs. And I think there's a lot of work there, but it's also where there is perhaps most um, room for improvements in any solution. It's at the interfaces. And this is exactly where uh, it takes more work because it requires you to somehow learn a little bit of the other person's and for them to learn a little bit of yours. But to a certain extent, I think this is a lot of what uh, you know, machine learning and statistics is today. And, um, and give an example, at the University of Stuttgart, what SimTech uh, is a lot about. It's bringing these very different uh, people who work from you know, numerical methods in differential equations, pure mathematicians perhaps, towards people who use those differential equations for actual problems to engineers, to computer scientists, and all these people somehow need to work together if we are to actually solve the problem of, you know, creating simulation the next simulation technology, let's say. So I think this is, um, this is definitely something that I discuss a lot with my students. This is definitely something that I bring a lot to my day-to-day -day, um, from my past experiences in industry. I take that word, past experiences, very gladly. Uh, you were a bachelor and master student at the University of Sao Paulo. You were an exchange student at the École Centrale de Lyon. And for your PhD in electrical and systems engineering, you went to the University of Pennsylvania. You were also a postdoc at UC Berkeley. And then, we heard about it, you worked as a at a research project with Embraer. So... Given all of these different steps or, how shall I say, periods, uh, milestones, whatever you prefer in, uh, in your academic career and the professional career, um, can you reflect about one episode perhaps at one of these uh, um, institutions that uh, really uh, shook you up? Uh, that uh, that influenced you very much and where you drew uh, a very personal or professional uh, conclusion? Okay, so if I have to pick one event uh, out of all of these, I think it would uh, definitely be one event that kept recurring throughout my life and it has to do with uh, culture and that's culture shock, essentially. Um, and, you know, growing up in Brazil... Uh, li living in France, living in France as a kid, moving to Germany now for now a year, having lived, you know, seven years in the U.S. almost. I think every time that uh, at least myself when I arrive somewhere, I feel that 
there is this first knee-jerk reaction of simply rejecting the way things work at any place because we are used to something. I am used to something different. I think because of the way I was raised very differently than people think here. And that means that the system here is set up in a way that is that I cannot understand. And I think this is a feeling to a certain extent that with time we get used to things, we start to understand better the reason why things are like they are, or we get used at least to you know the thought processes that went into how things are set up. Uh, but it also never completely goes away. And I think that's a very positive thing. I think that, um, you know, change is made by people who refuse to accept things as they are. Uh, I think that's George Bernard Shaw, but I'm not sure. It's, these things get attributed to the wrong people all the time. Um, but so I, I always have this little thing nowadays that I keep to myself to a certain extent where I decide what are the things that I will accept that I need to change to adapt to and what are the little battles that I will never give up on. And some of them are completely personal battles. Uh, I, it is very common in academia in Germany to clap by knocking on the table. I refuse to do that. Out of a complete sense of, you know, of, of no reason, there is no reason. It's my little battle. I don't clap loudly. I just clap in my corner. But this is my way of saying, I am not from here. I don't think it bothers anybody because I'm also not showing it off. But this is my little thing that I keep for myself. And I think it's very important for us to, at the same time, have these little things to keep to ourselves. At the same time as we obviously, for bigger things, try to both understand and adapt to the system, but also adapt the system to us. There is a Brazilian uh, singer uh, that has a song that says, um, Eu não vim para explicar, eu vim para confundir. I didn't come to explain, I came to confuse. And I think this is, in the end, a little bit what, what we live nowadays, right? I mean, after all of this international experience I've had, and I think, you know, as the world as well becomes more and more international, more and more globalized, it is important that we all understand that we all came to confuse each other and not necessarily to explain and in that confusion, hopefully, make something that, uh, that is better than the sum of the parts, right? And that requires everybody to work with everybody. We don't need to, add to, to agree or even to adapt to each other. We just need to work together to a certain extent. And I think that's the one event that kept happening over and over. And I am still not uh, used to it happening. It still bothers me. It's still, uh, I think it's a very stressful uh, thing, but I, I wouldn't give it up. I think it's, those are amazing experiences to be able to live in different cultures and different things. Yeah. Thank you for, for that, um, explanation, not confusing at all, making a very good point. I think, um, you have not given up a couple of things, I guess. Um, uh, you are interested in music. You play several instruments. I think as far as Brazilian music is concerned, it's uh, you were at once a member of a Foro band. Foro. Yeah. Foro. Uh, so you can tell us about that perhaps a little more. Uh, you also produced 
music and also international theater plays. You speak a couple of different languages, including Greek, uh, and you play soccer. To me, that's a very impressive range of activities. Given your busy calendar at the university and academia already, uh, these days, which of the ones is the most important to you? I would say that I pretend to do all these things more than I actually do them. <clears throat> and I think that I pretend to varying degrees of success. Uh, for example, I pretend to play soccer and it's a complete failure. Uh, I am actually very, very bad at that. Um, I pretend to speak some languages, some of them pretty well. Greek is one that, you know, more or less, uh, it's, it's still a work in progress. Uh, I don't even pretend to speak German, so to avoid any confusion. As far as music goes, I always like to play a lot. Um, many, I never was very attracted by any particular instrument. But, um, you know, for the most part, what I play is really the piano and the guitar, I would say. Those are the ones that I pretend the best. The rest is uh, just there in the list because it's in the list. I started... Uh, to get interested into electrical engineering and signal processing because of music. And that's somewhat of a well-known story. It's quite common, actually, for a lot of signal processing people to have started in, in music. But I don't know, I, it, it just combined two of, my, um, two of my passions to a certain extent, which was, you know, technical math and, and, um, and music. And it came also in quite handy during co-pandemic times, I think. You published a song, uh, or more than one song, I'm not even sure, uh, in 2020 in Greek. Uh, and uh, how did that come about? Yeah, it came in handy twice uh, during the pandemic. First, because all the conferences were online and we needed to make videos and uh, recordings for everything. And I was already prepared for that. So, you know, uh, it was worth spending those hours when I was a, a teenager playing around in, in or walking around in, in studios uh, back in Brazil. And it came about because obviously uh, during the pandemic, <clears throat> I think a lot of us during the pandemic got to, to different uh, hobbies. And I came back to my hobby of recording music. And one of the challenges that I placed myself in, in 2020 was to record a song in Greek. It was a language that I was learning at the time, and it was a good way for me to, uh, you know, sort of incentivize myself to, to, to write, to do something, and uh, to have a, sort of a milestone to walk towards. And um, so, in, you know, it, it, it took a little bit longer than, than, than 2020. The song came out in 2020, but the album really only... Uh, came out a few years later when I was uh, in, in Berkeley last year, actually in 2022. And this is just a compendium of a incredible total of three songs that uh, that I managed to record before in in between, you know, finishing the PhD and 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 moving to Germany. I think to a certain extent is what we talked about. Uh, art, art and science have so much in, in parallels. That it's it's really um, that it's really a great opportunity to be able to do both. 
uh, and to see and to see those parallels and to try to evolve uh, or or bring ideas from one into the other. And I think that's uh, that's part of also why I like I like to do of this uh, this both both things at the same time. Even though, like you mentioned. Um, the 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 time to do both of them is quite restrictive so you know i it's it's hard to find time to to do everything but i think a little bit of everything we can always try to dr shaman thank you again for having explained your view on uh the relation between arts and science or science and arts whatever uh in whatever order you would uh like to put it now i would like to come back to science and uh, ask you what's upcoming for you in your research life next so the next thing coming up uh in probably now in in a few weeks is our tutorial on constraint learning at uh triple ai in vancouver so that is happening end of February. So we'll be giving a half-day tutorial about all the topics uh, that we mentioned today. So if you are interested in learning about constraint learning, you can come uh, visit us in Vancouver. More broadly, my work goes on at Alice and Simtech and the University of Stuttgart with my students. And honestly, I'm not sure what's next. And uh, I think that's a good thing. For sure, I know what's next. And that's our moment seven. seven questions that we would like to ask you and please as answer them as shortly as possible. Moment one. Spätzle or Maultaschen? Maultaschen. Moment two. One thing you could change about the world. I think we could all use a little bit less seriousness. Moment three. Since you also play music, Would you have a recommendation for us? So I am going to give you a slightly different recommendation, which is to go see a movie and rather than listening to music, uh, which is called They Shot the Piano Player. It's a, music, it's a movie that came out this year from a Spanish movie about a Brazilian piano player that was, um, that was kidnapped and disappeared in Argentina during the, um, during the dictatorship. And he was one of the most virtuoso piano players in Brazil. He was playing with Vinicius de Moraes at the time when he disappeared. And the movie is actually a documentary. It's an animation documentary that interviews a enormous num number of Brazilian superstars of Brazilian music, really, uh, from Milton Nascimento to Vinicius de Moraes. Uh, uh, Belbo Valdez shows up at some point. It's, it's an incredible movie about... Uh, you know, a really sad part of Latin American history. I think it's, it's very nice. Moment four. The best advice that you have ever received was? Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Moment five. Your favorite place on campus at the University of Stuttgart is which one? I really like my office. Moment six. Please finish the sentence. If I could start all over again, I would do the following 
differently? If I could start all over again, I would have learned German before moving to Germany. <laughs> and finally, moment seven. Also, complete this sentence. Thanks to my studies, I know that... Thanks to my studies, I know that I don't know anything. But that we know a lot of. Thank you so much for our conversation today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for letting us share uh, some of your uh, thoughts uh, about uh, the field that you work in, um, but also uh, about uh, academia in general, the relation of arts and science. Uh, and I felt today a little bit about the human situation in general as well. Thank, thank you very much. I really appreciate the, the invitation and the opportunity to be here. I, uh, and thank you for asking me these uh, hard questions and for giving me the opportunity to try at least to articulate some of the scientific and non-scientific aspects of my experience here. You are very welcome. And to our audience, please stay tuned for our upcoming conversations that are always based on what is made in science. My name is Wolfgang Holtkamp. Have a great podcasting day. Goodbye and good talking.